Welcome to Thrive, a series that explores how founders, leaders, and changemakers innovate, grow, and navigate in an age of constant disruption. In this conversation, Free Range Design and Innovation speaks with Sanu Huang, the CEO of SixUp, an edtech and fintech disruptor. You've seen that the education system is higher education is not working for many, many students. First, before we talk about the solution, what's really so broken for so many American college students? It has a lot to do with an unlevel playing field that high-achieving low-income students who are underfunded and underbanked uh, and underserved um, face when trying to go through the gauntlet of the American dream. First and foremost is high-achieving low-income students have the ability to get into a four-year institution um, and a selective four-year institution. However, because of the lack of access to uh, capital and funding when they don't get a full-ride scholarship at Harvard, which is the majority of high-achieving low-income students, um, they face a decision point where they either downgrade schools, where they, they have, there are lesser outcomes at those institutions, like a two-year community college, or they work nine jobs or they delay graduation, which is a lot of what I had to do. Um, and moreover, if they don't access the better schools with the better opportunities, they lack access to social capital. They lack access to opportunities like companies recruiting on campus at a school like where I went to, Northwestern, relative to where I transferred from, which was Oregon. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion of, uh, about how to serve low-income students, and what most of us hear about is that, you know, that tranche where it's, you're getting the full ride, or well, there's community college available for everyone, and it seems like you guys have just seen this big user problem, this big gap in, in that middle, and how, how big is that population? Well, it's massive. If you add the numbers, there are 20 million Pell Grant eligible students in the U.S. per year. It's a $40 billion program. And of the 20 million, 7 million are what we deem as high-achieving low-income students, which are the ones that are attending or getting into or wanting to transfer into a four-year institution. They face gaps to attend four-year institutions between five and 15,000 per year. So five to 15,000 per year to fund every single one of these 7 million deserving high-achieving low-income students uh, in aggregate is about 30 to $100 billion underfunding gap. And that's net of all the federal aid out there, financial aid in terms of loans and grants, it's also a net of whatever the institutions give to these students. Um, so that gap is what currently is not being served by the capital markets. It's not being served by the federal government. And it's what's suffocating and preventing high-achieving low-income talent from getting through the system. So that's, a, that's an enormous market. Why is nobody <clears throat> up until now really looking at that? Why, why would the market turn its back on it? Well, it's simple. I mean, the capital markets look at risk, and when they don't have data and have zero visibility into risk, they don't take on that risk. Um, and because the current credit models are based on FICO, which is essentially the credit score system that uh, is the conventional way of evaluating risk, what ends up happening is the, if you think about a pyramid where the top of the food chain are the high income FICO, the super prime, or the 1%, um, they're serviced by the uh, capital markets. but Kids like me and the majority of folks on our team who are high-achieving low-income students who actually made it without the help of a six-up um, get lumped into the bottom portion of the pyramid, which is subprime. And so, you know, we've got to create a new way to reconfigure the asset class of this high-achieving low-income talent into something that we call future prime. So, um, but that, the preventing mechanisms are lack of access to visibility and data um, and risk, and then the inability to actually aggregate and find these students uh, that are generally in disadvantaged low-income backgrounds and neighborhoods. So you fought your way through the, the system. You kind of hacked your way through and figured it out for yourself. 
but now you've come up with a solution that addresses this for, for millions. So tell us a little bit about how you can meet that market. So the best way I can describe it is if you take the venture capital investing in startups overlay and you look at VCs looking at startups that have high potential for exit and different startup companies have different paths to exit, uh, they essentially evaluate the startups for potential. They make bets on those startups, but they give them chunks of money or tranches of money over time based on traction. And if you replace startup with low-income student and high potential pathways with what schools they get into, and different schools have different outcomes like graduation rates, freshman year retention rates, job placement. Um, and then if you look at investing that low-income talent and progressively re-upping on them based on their progression, i.e. academic progression and performance, then their exits are basically graduation and job creation. So um, the system is devised to, to mobilize this pooling of capital, this deployment of capital, and then re-upping and monitoring and support so that they can actually make it through the finish line. I'll give you a, a baseline, which is really my background and story. I um, applied to a bunch of schools when I was a high school senior and I didn't get in. And so I ended up going to um, a, a situation where I was faced with University of Oregon. So I went to Oregon for my first year and I regrouped and then I wanted to transfer to Northwestern when I got in. I couldn't afford Northwestern because there was a gap. It was a $14,000 aid package, Pell Grant, Stafford loan, Perkins loan, work study. Northwestern gave me a nice grant and scholarship, but tuition and room and board was $26,000, so there was a gap. So because I didn't have access to capital, I had to take time off, work at Costco for a period of time to save money. And I transferred to Northwestern. As soon as I landed, I started working. And I worked year long, nine jobs. So during the week, weekends, and summers, which ended up, A, delaying my graduation one year, which is not good. Um, there's a high correlation between the more it takes in terms of years to graduate, the higher propensity to drop out or not make it. The second piece that I had to face was over the summers, I was working all the time. So I couldn't get any internships and uh, build my resume. So my senior year, when I was fortunate enough, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to go to Northwestern, was that. Um, McKinsey and BCG and Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan were recruiting on campus. So you could get picked in the lottery system or you could get picked in the resume system. But because I was working all the time, I had a resume that was J. Crew, Nike, math tutor, personal trainer, and nothing on the order of having a summer internship at a law firm or an investment firm. So I was at a 25 point disadvantage, is what the data shows, to get a, a full time job relative to a peer who had a summer internship. And so, um, but I fought my way through and I ended up getting seven job offers. Now, what we do is we basically provide life cycle funding to not only allow students to upgrade to Northwestern right away instead of having to wait a year, which gets them on track for a timely graduation. The second thing we do is because we're relieving them of financial stress of having to work nine jobs, it frees up their bandwidth and their energy to work on academics. And moreover, over the summers, uh, free up their bandwidth to be able to take on a summer internship in which case we provide our support services to help them find summer internships and build that resume over time, which from a lending standpoint, de-risks that, that, that student. And so as the entrepreneur, as the leader of this organization, how much is your personal experience having been a kind of end user being leveraged? How much is it kind of the team doing the, the kind of market analysis and the, and the service analysis? You know, how much is your experience kind of, are you building this for you, for a younger you in a sense? Well, absolutely. I think there are a couple layers of why the backgrounds and the DNA of the team um, position us really well to solve the problem, to attack the problem. Because our backgrounds, actually, we came from the problem space. 
we know all the different nuances of the things that I've been speaking to around what's it like to have to work multiple jobs during school, what's it like to not be able to go to your dream school, um, what's it like to experience the, the reality that you have to transfer from a two-year to a four-year school. Um, so having that experiential knowledge and DNA allows us to really understand what the problem is so we can devise the solutions at the nuanced level, which is really where the, 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 the value creation is on that standpoint. I think the second thing is, is that the founder team DNA um, really is this notion that, you know, the problem is going to be very difficult. We're facing a lot of challenges climbing up this mountain. But because we're not in a position where we want to pivot and just create a new idea and put something up on the wall, uh, we're actually not going to give up. So I think that's, that tenacity is something that I think is uh, recognized so far. We've seen that happen already in the team. And I think the market has an appreciation for this notion that we are not going to give up. We're going to keep striving to climb that mountain uh, no, ma no matter what it takes. So I think those two aspects really speak to the, 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 the DNA of the team and how we can mobilize and empower ourselves to actually go in, in, in on a track to success. If we want to solve big social equity problems, and as you're saying, you know, someone who's been through the experience has a much better chance of understanding it, now 6UP is also bringing a lot more young people who are also end users to social equity um, products and services through the, through the pipeline. Are you hoping that a lot of your graduates will do sort of the same as you've done? No, absolutely. I mean, our mission statement is really predicated upon lifting the next generation and being lifted by the folks that were the previous generation. So if you know we were the ones that made it without a six up, and we can create the system to use six up to invest in the next generation at scale, not just one check at a time, um, you know, one scholarship at a time, which is a really manual and it's not a scalable solution. But really, if you want to go after a 30 to $100 billion problem space per year, then being able to uh, not only mobilize the system, but you're actually, uh, the underpinnings, you're creating a movement. So what you're doing is pretty capital intensive. There's, you, you've had some success in the, in the venture community. How, tell me a little bit about, about the stories of raising money for this and how the, the purpose side of this has made it harder, easier. Um, what's the experience been? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the um, ability to mobilize ed tech and fintech, which are both very you know popular um, areas of investment for venture capitalists, um, but also going into um, a fintech space that's five times the market of SoFi. If you look at SoFi as a comp, I mean they went from two million in loan volume at Stanford as their pilot, refinancing Ivy League graduates, and just living off of that top one percent of the pyramid and scaled to over 12 billion in five years, and they went from a eight million valuation to a four billion valuation in the same period of time. Again, focusing on a market that's the top of the food chain. Our market's five times their size. So from that standpoint, just building a great business with great unit economics and um, also a space that just people are really scared to go into, um, that was really the baseline of our um, approach in packaging six up for raise. The fact that it's doing something purposeful and it's solving a really big problem that people care about around financial inclusion and workforce development and investing in human capital and in equity um, was really the ability to attract investors that really want to look for a double bottom line uh, type investment. So we intentionally did not make any mention of social impact or impact investing. We really grounded it upon just a great fintech edtech company uh, with an impact angle and then was they, we were able to bring on some investors that were aligned with that mission and, and vision and business value proposition. And so um, it took some time. It certainly took a while 
uh, for us to tune our fundraising capability. And I think we're continuing to do that now as we go towards Series A um, early 2018. And anything not working so far? Anything along the way that you, know, you were sure was going to be great and you've had a let go of already? Um, there's always a lot of things not working um, in a startup. And I think um, you know, the things that are working is that the machinery is working. We're finding students through our partners like KIPP um, and Genesis Works and TRIO programs. We're um, using our underwriting model and evaluating them and funding actual students in Texas in our pilot. So, but part of that process is really understanding, um, A, the, the top order thing is it just, it's going to take a lot more time to do what we're doing. Uh, when, you, um, when you go after a population where there are not very um, captive acquisition channels, um, you know, you, you've got to figure out a way to optimize those channels in terms of conversion. I think the second thing is it takes a lot more time to gestate a brand new credit model that's basically built from scratch. I mean, this is a non-FICO credit model based on student performance, student achievement. It's real time. It requires a lot of data. And it's going to have to gestate when you're dealing with origination, which is you're funding the students as freshmen, and then they won't graduate and start paying off their loans until four years plus a six-month grace period. So it takes a lot more time than a SOFI, which is refinancing the graduate. Um, Everyone's talking about how the future of work is going to look so different. Um, do you think that this is going to persist, that these top tier universities are still going to be the main ticket to a, a career, the careers of the future? Um, and if not, you know, how will your model adjust? Sure. By 2025, two thirds of all jobs in the US are going to require post-secondary credentials. And just so you know, today, 77% um, of high income working age adults have those credentials. Only 9% of low income working age adults have post-secondary credentials. So if you think forward to what the workforce is going to look like that's going to drive our economy, uh, we're going to need to draw a pipeline of talent to fill those jobs. And right now, the headroom is in the low-income population. Um, otherwise, we're going to be importing a lot of that talent because it's just not there in the high-income set. Um, so if you work from that back, um, right now, these 7 to 20 million low-income students out there um, need to be mobilized into pathways that result in being able to serve that workforce. So if you think about higher education as a pathway, one of many pathways for um, STEM, for example, um, I think that's the main track and the mainstream uh, track that we're focused on right now. There are certainly alternative pathways that are emerging like code academies, which um, are kind of more of a fast track STEM to job. Uh, I would submit that that's good for folks that are generally high income folks that can afford to do that. Um, and um, it's a pretty small volume right now in terms of both need and market. Um, we haven't focused on that intentionally to focus more on the main street. But I think higher education as an institution certainly broken and efficient. I think there are ways to improve it through technology as well as through kind of solving this big monster problem that we have around um, how much it costs and the rising cost of tuition and the outcomes that, and the value that you get around that. I think there's a lot of um, uh, reconfiguration and accountability that has to happen in the higher education landscape. But I think for low-income populations, one thing I think people don't necessarily appreciate is that um, in-the-ground uh, institutional education is not going to go anywhere. I think it just needs to be optimized a little bit more because there's so much value out of social capital and experiential learning. And I think that that's one of the main benefits that I gained by going from Oregon to Northwestern is it not only opened my eyes from here to here, moving to Chicago, but also it exposed me to a whole set of social capital that I think this notion of, you know, 
skip college, whether you're Peter Thiel or, you know, be a Zuckerberg or Bill Gates and just drop out of Harvard. I mean, that's such a minority, minority percent of the population. That's not reality for Main Street America and Main Street populations of, of talent that we need to mobilize to um, produce GDP for the nation. Yeah. I think a lot of entrepreneurs um, are not maybe, are shying away from some of the opportunities to do the kind of social interventions that you're doing because the system seems so complex and interrelated. And I, I think the way that you're looking at it, both the, the future of work, uh, the problems students face, uh, the, the, the need for capital markets, is very integrated kind of approach that makes it suddenly seem, sol intractable problems seem solvable. And do you have any advice for, for an entrepreneur who wants to make a social impact and sees that, okay, there's just so many crossing problems here. How do you start picking apart a system and designing a solution for a whole system? So, you know, there's an interesting thing that I've learned just going out to the impact investing community and talking to folks that want to invest in social uh, purpose-driven companies. Um, solving big, massive social problems comes with high risk. If you have risk-averse impact investors trying to so invest in social entrepreneurs that are trying to solve big problems with very low-risk solutions, you've got a massive disconnect. And so I think there's room for folks who want to do one side of the spectrum. But I think we focus on the other side of the spectrum, which is big, ambitious, big, hairy, audacious problems that are going to require very strong talent, disciplined talent, and very um, disciplined, ambition investors. And getting that match is really, really important. So I think the advice I would give is pick what side of the equation you want to be in, and then orient and align with folks that are going to give you the capital and be aligned on the same framework and the same risk-adjusted roadmap. Um, and, and make sure you spend a lot of time doing that segmentation. We spent a lot of time going back and forth about across both sides, and I think we burned a lot of time, but we did learn a lot about now we know how we need to filter in the folks that are on this side of the spectrum for us. Um, I think the second piece of advice I would give is, is you know, is, you know, having a mission-driven, purpose-driven company is beautiful. I mean, there's nothing better than waking up saying, you know, I love what I do, and it comes from a space deep within. And our team has that same DNA. It's, they want to really solve the problem. So we almost get a multiplier effect on work ethic, if you will, and you know, grit and never giving up, as I referenced earlier. Um, and I think being a social entrepreneur from something you care deeply about and it comes from within is really important. And I think those entrepreneurs are going to make it, not the ones that are saying, hey, this is cute. I want to be an impact social entrepreneur. Let me try to do something that I think I can solve. But it's not coming from a deep place. It's coming from a different place, which is I want to either have that on my resume or um, you know, it's this aspirational thing that's kind of cool now what I want to do. We might be moving into an era now where uh, the nuanced systems approach uh, is going to get less respect in a time when we can, you know, build a wall in, in two days in office. You know, that kind of big, flashy kind of solutions. Do you, do you worry that people have less kind of interest and patience for complex complexity? You know, I think um, my opinion is given the landscape and the political cl climate, the social climate that we're facing, um, more and more folks are kind of be either in the system or coming into the system that want to do purpose-driven companies and solve these big-ass problems. Mm -hmm. Pardon my French there. But uh, they, and, and I think so the, the, the pipeline of entrepreneurial spirit and supply is not going to, it's not going to um, go down. I think it's going to go up. Um, I think the question is now is like how do you then marry um, mid-career talent with young career talent, because I think that hybrid is what's going to be the match. And that's going to be the proxy for the next 2.0 forward. 
of talent teams that are going to come together. It's not going to be just kids out of school or students just graduating, and it's not just going to be uh, old guys like me that are trying to do something socially entrepreneurial. I think this, this, you know, that's going to be a big recipe for success. I've been looking into the mindsets of, of entrepreneurs for my new book, and um, you know, there's this need to be able to take risk, but also this uh, common discipline to, to really not flip from one thing to the next and look for that quick solution. Uh, I know you put a lot of work into being coming a martial arts expert um, and a national champion. So I'm curious about how that experience um, of both discipline but also risk taking uh, you know, informs you as a, as a leader within the company and as an entrepreneur. Sure. My dad is a martial arts instructor. So he teaches judo, taekwondo, hamkido. Uh -huh. So in my family, there were a couple rules that you had to follow. Number one is, you know, work, study hard in school. Two, don't talk back to your parents. Three, eat your kimchi because it's good for you. And then four <laughs> is do judo and non-negotiable. You know, there's a reason why it takes a, most judo is or judo players, it takes them, you know, 10 to 12 years to get a black belt. You cannot accelerate it. You can't fast track it. And if you do, you're not really a black belt. Mm -hmm. And it's, you can see it if you hurt. put one who's done it for 12 years and one who's done it for a, a year. Yeah. Um, so having that patience and that understanding that it's just cycles, right? And you've got to practice, you've got to train. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, that's been great for us as a company with kind of this long gestation, big mountain uh, that we're climbing. I think the second thing is is really um, understanding the calibration of, of um, achievement with potential. And in my dad, he used to always teach that two white belts that started the same day at the same age um, would progress at different rates. So one student would be in a year, they would be a yellow belt, and another student in a year would still be a white belt. And the student that is a white belt in a year says, why do I have to be a white belt when um, you know, Sarah is, is, is already a yellow belt? Like, what's the deal? I'm, we're both started the same day. So my dad would have to convince them that the difference is that Sarah pathway basically to black belt is very different. It, it goes to about here. Whereas yours is on a trajectory for a slow uptick to a much bigger black belt. So it's going to take you a little more time. So you can't compare yourself to Sarah. That's not You need to compare yourself to your potential. And so he would always test and say, fine, I can give you a yellow belt. I can give you a black belt. Takes it out of the drawer, gives it to the student, and they're immediately saying, I don't want it, right? I don't want, no, I don't. He said, no, take off your yellow belt, white belt, let me put on a black belt, and it freaks the kid out. And they're like, no, 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 I don't want a Master Huang, I don't want a Master Huang. And, uh, and it sinks in, right? It sinks in. And so, you know, I think aspects of that, and, and certainly the third thing would be just this whole art of judo, which is, you know, using the opponent's strength and momentum and power to your advantage. And we do a lot of judo at Six Up. You know, you've got to... <laughs> You've got to judo people to come into a brand new um, capital stack where you're getting debt capital and you don't have loan performance, you don't have a portfolio. Um, you've got to really try to spark the plug with foundations that, in one part, really love what you're doing, but they're also very risk averse. Great. Um, well, really inspiring story. Um, great, great business model. And uh, now I'd love for the audience to uh, ask some questions. Um, so I was kind of curious, I mean, you talked about this idea that um, you're trying to get kids into these top colleges, and there are so many young people who have potential that aren't necessarily going to be able to get into those top colleges. So for those who don't get into those top colleges, go to maybe a second tier, third tier, how do you ensure that they still have access to the opportunities outside of university 
to make sure that they're giving you the return that you're seeking? We think any four-year institution is fair game. Um, so the main bulk, the Main Street students are going to Main Street four-year schools. And our belief is if we can just simply upgrade and upmatch students from a two-year, which most of these kids get into, who get into a four-year school but may not be able to afford and are forced to downgrade, if we can lift them into the four-year institutions, the likelihood for outcomes goes up on a multiplier effect. So just from going from a tier four, three, two, one school, if we upgrade them from a two-year to just anything above that continuum, their graduation rates can go up 6x, okay? Lifetime median income goes up 2x. And federal loan default rates go down 6x. So just by simply up matching them, um, we can at least put them on a path for better outcomes at the institutional level. Now, the student still has to perform and achieve, but that's a core part of our methodology. And also, we want to market intentionally, not wanting to just service the tier one students or the tier one schools. Hi. Um so whenever you're approaching students, uh, I know that you're saying that you have a couple of different conduits, conduits of how you get to them. I am assuming you have to have messaging tailored to their parents as well as to them. How do you find that that's different in holding, in getting like their families buy-in as well as them personally feeling responsible and accountable to making the decisions that's going to make them lower risk for you? Uh, we're really trying to shift the narrative and the perspective from, wait, Student loans or investing in your future is actually a good thing if you do it properly, you do it smartly. So um, many counselors that we've been talking to, some of them, I, I met with one group, and they were like, we don't believe in loans. So we advise our students to never take out loans. And I, going back to your point, I said, well, that's kind of weird because why wouldn't you want them to maybe spend a little more money to go to a better school where the outcomes are just dramatically better? And so we've had to do a lot of messaging to kind of change that mindset. So we really spend a lot of time with our messaging and some of our knowledge that we push out as part of our services or support is kind of what we think is a shift from financial literacy to pathway literacy. And think of it as Google Maps for mobility. That's really what we're trying to now push out to the market, which a lot of folks are really excited about because the messaging is not just about selling a product. It's really selling a new framework and a new point of view um, because the old point of view is broken and it's not working, which is student debt is bad, student debt um, or college education is only what you can afford. So we've really got to shift that paradigm out. So I think, well, I got a question for the audience. <laughs> so I'd be curious to know how many went to a four-year school, if you don't mind raising your hand. Okay, and how many of you that went to a four, keep them up, keep them up. How many of you who went to a four-year institution uh, had financial aid, and if you didn't, drop your hand? And how many of you who had financial aid um, had to fill the gap otherwise? Meaning it wasn't a full-ride scholarship. Okay. And how many of you who, um, who did that um, are now what I would consider prime borrowers? <laughs> right? Okay. So the minority of the folks that are in this room with the hands still up, that's what we're trying to do is to turn the $7 million into all those hands. So I think if you look at any demographic cycle, I've been in rooms where actually the whole room is like, well, we went to Harvard Ivy Leagues, right? And how many were on financial aid and all the hands go down? So it's, uh, it's interesting to see how the slices are of America in terms of what the problem is, but also certainly where people have achieved their mobility. So thanks for participating in my little survey. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. Thank you.
Thanks for joining our conversation. For additional events, tools, and articles, subscribe at thrive.freerange.com.